For over 30 years, Gil Minervini has produced some of Australia's most engaging and successful international events and festivals, creating unforgettable, immersive experiences for diverse audiences. Early creative roles included a position as the inaugural festival director for the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras in the late 1980s, an extraordinary time for the community. For 17 years, she was creative director for the City of Sydney, overseeing annual events that included Chinese New Year and the Christmas celebrations. The canvases on which she creates are vast and varied. Her event festival and theatre accomplishments include the Rugby League World Cup 2017, Newtown Festival, Barangaroo Welcome Celebrations and the Australian Theatre of the Deaf. Such product also allows her a plethora of platforms on which to present such production. A mantra which she shares with her teams is that they are in the business of creating memories. All of us can recall the first time we shared in the palpable experience of a particular event or festival, an immersion amongst community and the theatre of life, vital experiences that feed into the human condition. Gil Minervini loves her job and communicating stories. It's obvious in this conversation. She provides insight, reflection and passion for the craft of making big art and telling stories with a broad palette. English entertainment. <laughs> you got to laugh. you got to laugh. So, Minervini, that's obviously Italian background? Yes, it is. My grandfather is Italian. Right. Um, and he died when he was in his uh, late 80s and came out here when he was 13 with his brother, Uncle Nick. And... Right. Um, because uh, they're from southern, they're from Puglia, which is very fashionable now, but, you know, was a very poor part of Italy um, for a long time, southern Italy. So they came out here looking for a, a better life and uh, landed in Port Piri. And um, he was a very interesting man, my grandfather. He then uh, was a cane cutter, you name it, Sergio did it, basically. Right. And quite the entrepreneur and anyway, ended up in Broken Hill um, running a variety of small businesses, very Italian kind of thing to do, and met my grandmother who was one of 13 kids who were all born in Birmingham except except Nana. And so it must have been quite a thing then to, to marry an Italian, you know. So this would have been... My, my father was born in 1926, so they were probably married, you know, well, before that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, we yeah I think so. So let, let's say 1920. So um, marrying, you know, an Italian then would have been incredibly um, uh, progressive and unusual thing to do. Exotic. It's very exotic. Yeah. yeah. And um, they, my father was born in Broken Hill and then they moved to Adelaide and my grandfather became a very successful fishmonger, had a very successful fish business. And, um, Did he go out in the boat? No, he had out? a shop in um, in Grote Street near the Adelaide Mar- as part of the Adelaide Markets, which are still fantastic markets. Um, yeah, and did really well for himself, and um, and you know sent my my dad to Scotch College, which is where I ended up going, and you know his two daughters to private schools and things like that. So. Um, you know, Dad remembers, as do I actually, being pretty much the only Italian surname in school. There was one other Greek guy when I was at Scotch, Scotch Adelaide. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, and I love that part of my heritage. And, and Dad married a, you know, an Aussie girl. Um, and even then that was, that was you know, quite, 
quite an interesting thing to do. So. Were you a bit of a focus at school because of your Italian background? Or uh, I used to name? dread used to dread the roll call. Yeah. Because back then teachers um, didn't give a shit really about embarrassing kids. You know, right. there was no uh, effort made to. Um, make people feel more comfortable or whatever and people would trip over my surname all the time which is not a very difficult oh, easy, surname yeah. um so no i wasn't a focus um yeah it's interesting uh i i don't ever really remember very much racism i kind of you know the odd taught but everyone got got teased a little bit for something um but yeah, no, not really. But there was me and George Cambitsis. We were the only two. Um, the Italian and, and the Greek. Yeah, the Italian and the yeah. Greek, exactly. And now you, you know, I went to the 100th anniversary of Scotch last year to the dinner for my dear old dad who died and we were all going to go together. So we went sort of in honour of dad. And it's a very multicultural school now, which is terrific. But the time you arrived, I guess it would have only been a co-ed school for a few years. Yeah, it only been co-ed for two years, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, and my dad went there, my brother went there, and so I went there, um, became school captain, which was my, my father told me was the proudest moment of his life, because he was a... Were you the first female school captain? No, probably no. the third, I think. All right, okay. Yeah. Because right, right. um, he'd, been, he'd been a prefect and believes that he wasn't chosen to be head prefect because he was Italian, so it all comes back to that. That was yeah. his story anyway. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was a terrific terrific school actually I was I feel very privileged to have gone there when I did it was very progressive doesn't seem that progressive now but you know girls were wearing pants to school and calling their teachers by their first names and you know there was a sort of late 70s we're talking um, sort of or mid 70s uh, relaxation of you know rules and things like that and I responded really well to that so yeah what was the uh, arts experience like at school was it a drama program a music program uh, there, you couldn't do drama then as a right. subject yeah. um, uh, but I had a fabulous English teacher who you know called Jan well she called, was called Jan Morris then um, Jan Maurice Jan Maurice um, and so she ran the drama uh, she did the school plays and all of that stuff and I had her for two years and that was she was a mentor to me. She um, she changed my life. She actually really solidified what I wanted to do. And, you know, I can never... It's interesting that my partner's a teacher because I've always had so much respect for that profession in terms of, you know, what they can what they can get out of a kid and what they can do for a kid. My mother had been a singer in the National Opera. She was an opera singer. And um, uh, so I had a very kind of... Uh, big artsy influence in my in my childhood and my mother supported what I wanted to do my father thought I should be a lawyer <laughs> um, but it was Jan that really opened my eyes she used to take kids out to the theatre you know at night just just because she wanted to and so back then the State Theatre Company of South Australia was you know Jim Sharman and you know it was a Neil Armfield it was amazing early days of um, State Theatre Company so we would go, I don't know, it felt like once a week. It probably wasn't. But we would go and see lots of things with Jan. Quite regularly, and, yeah. Yeah. Her daughter became my best friend at school, Tara. And, um, you know, I was in all the school plays. And Jan got me to write, which is sort of how the whole career thing started. And I entered a... 
she encouraged me to enter a uh, well to write plays and I wrote two and they won you know back then the Australian Elizabethan Theatre Trust Young Playwrights Award two years in a row and that was Jan's encouragement that did that you know so yeah she she's and for her to come back in my life because she now teaches with Caroline my partner and you um it's a bizarre sort of twist of fate I'd seen her at a couple of my events over the years but um yeah, I think sometimes people are meant to stay in your life for a reason and she's one of them. Yeah, for a lifetime, yeah. Yeah. And she's still doing that very precious job of delivering an experience to kids and, yeah. and fostering that uh, that the passion that everybody has. We yeah. all need champions like that. Yeah, she's she's quite extraordinary. She really is. I could never thank her enough for yeah. what she gave me. Yeah. So Gil, is that a sh- a short for Gillian? Yeah. Yeah. I, it's a Welsh name. I don't really know why my parents chose it. <laughs> but I've, uh, the only time I was ever called Gillian was when I was in trouble. So I'm Gil or Gilly to my parents. So, right. yeah, I'm not sure really what the what the reason was. Whenever I've heard your surname, Minervini, I always think of Minerva, mm. the Roman goddess, mm. who I did a little, just before you arrived, I did a little bit of uh, research on. I thought, I wonder who, what the Roman goddess was about. Um, and she was the Roman goddess of wisdom and strategic warfare and the sponsor of arts, trade and strategy. Did you know that? I kind of, I always thought she was the goddess of the hearth of home. So maybe that's a different interpretation, but that's very, I'll, I'll take that one. Well, well, yeah, well, I thought how bizarre considering that we you know talking to you today about your role in uh, events production and, and management and, um, and festivals. Mm. Um, that yeah, seems that to be is... a pretty good um, <laughs> profile to have. <laughs> Maybe I should have called the business Minerva Productions. <laughs> <laughs> Never too late. Um, and on that, I read that you regularly remind yourself and your team whenever you're working on a job that we're in the business of creating memories. Mm. I wonder where you read that. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are. And I think um, um, when I'm directing events... I, uh, it sounds a bit cliched, but I always start with how I, the audience experience, how I would view this. And I guess when I was working at the City of Sydney, I was the creative director of events for, and producer for 15 years. So that meant 15 Martin Place Christmas concerts, 15 Chinese New Year parades or, you know, whatever. Um, and so I used to always give the team a bit of a pep talk, particularly around Christmas, and say, you know, who, who remembers going to a Christmas concert when you were little with your parents? And 99% of people can. And you know, I said, you still remember that now, you know? And so don't get complacent about what we're doing. Um, and I don't want to overblow it, you know, it's changing the world. But um, we're the people that created those memories that you still have. And I think that's... An important responsibility and I um, I think that's what I love probably the most about directing big public events is getting that incredible response and immediate response um, the only other time I got it when it was you know um, directing shows for you know, theatre shows or you know being in them which has a terrible actor but um, uh, yeah it's a, the memories are really important and um, and in fact um, often uh, gay people come, gay, gay men and lesbians come up to me and say, oh, I you know, remember your festivals or I was at that party and you did that show or whatever and I'll never forget it. And, you know, it's a, it's a great tonic. It makes you feel great. That's when you worked at Mardi Gras. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so in your extensive years as an audience member, is there an evening or event or a concert, a performance that remains with you today as a demonstration of the, the power of the arts? Ah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, there's a few. The first thing that popped into my head, bizarrely, uh, maybe it's being surrounded by all these posters of all these fabulous camp productions, but um, <laughs> was my mother took me to see Liza Minnelli at um, the Adelaide Festival Theatre. Oh, God, I reckon I must have been, I was a teenager, I yeah. was young. It was the first time I'd ever been in an audience with a standing ovation. Um, and I think it was the first time I ever saw somebody that was absolutely electrifying. Um, and that feeling, I felt like I was electrified. I, it was an extraordinary feeling. Well, she would have been the height of her powers then yeah. too. Yeah. yeah, it was not, I guess, not too long after the cabaret. Yeah, probably the Fosse era. Well, yeah. I'm thinking, you know, and I was fascinated. Let's look here, up what year it was. Just before I turned the mic on, you know, your fascination with variety TV shows. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, you think, you know, she was a big presence, it would seem, on the domain show oh. when we were watching it, that yeah, she would yeah. always call in for a, for a chat or yeah. whatever. Yeah, and my brother... Um, my brother introduced me to cabaret. I've got a gay brother and uh, who's a chef, Scott, and um, he's seven years older than me. So he he would drag me to the movies all the time, and he took me to cabaret when I was quite young, and uh, you know that changed my life too. That movie. Um, so then seeing her, yeah. But um, lots of things. The Adelaide Festival actually is probably the uh, to me um, symbolises the power of a variety of experiences, but the power of the arts. Because I grew up in Adelaide with the Adelaide Festival and I still think, um, I'm maybe a bit biased because I've been working on it in the last few years, but I, I still think it's one of the best arts festivals in the world. And I saw things like um, the Worcester Group and Spalding Grey and, you know, just amazing kind of, I guess, more, um, I don't know, edgy, contemporary sort of works there and that really opened my eyes in terms of what I wanted to do and big public events there too so but yeah and then I think probably the first Mardi Gras I went to with my best friend um, Robert McFarlane um, we you know got the plane got an ANSET plane to <laughs> Sydney and went to the parade in 1983 I think um, you know, there were no barricades or anything like that. That was another life-changing experience in terms of the power of the arts. Completely different, but um, yeah, I've got a, I've probably got, got, a, got a few. Yeah, 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 a lot of great experiences. Um, you're the child of publicans. Yeah, you, you, you spent right. your years in pubs up until you were about ten years old. That's right. That must have been a rich education in the theatre of humanity <laughs> and, and characters. Yeah, it was. It was. My dad was always going to write a book. I wish he had. Um, because for six, from from about, or from one to ten, my parents had pubs. But from from uh, age four to ten, we were in Keith, which is halfway between Melbourne and Adelaide, the Keith Hotel Motel. Um, and that was... Is it still there? Yeah, it's yeah, still there. Yeah. Uh, country pub with about, I can't remember now, but a, a lot of hotel rooms. And we lived in the pub for several years until we went and moved to the house next door. So, yeah, full of um, full of characters. And I think that's when, well, that's when I first fell in love with the microphone because I used to, um, you, you know, number 54, your counter tea is ready. And then I'd go into these elaborate descriptions <laughs> of the meals. Uh, and I think that's when I first started loving performing and loving particularly talking you know particularly kind of 
you know, so it wasn't a surprise that I went and did radio and went and did a whole bunch of stuff. But yeah, mum would have to say, okay, that's enough now, Gil. <laughs> They've come and got their meal. Um, but yeah, amazing characters and... And not unusual to see kids in pubs either. No, I remember, we lived you know. at the pub. I mean, yeah. I was, I'd come home from school, drop my bag, go and sit up on the corner of the bar because mum worked in the lounge bar and dad worked in the front bar. Um, you know, people would be horrified. I'd get my little packet of chips and a little bottle of coke you know those and that was my after school every day and um sit up there I knew everyone everyone knew me um yeah we used to have what was called cabarets on a Saturday night and the local band had come and I loved it you know it was a yeah. real night owl and great. I was up till late and you know I don't think any of the worst came of me <laughs> because of it but we've all gone into hospitality in one way or another you know I think what I do is hospitality in a way my brother's a chef you know so, yeah. Were your parents happy about a career in the arts? Uh, Dad wanted me to be a lawyer. Well, yeah. 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 Uh, no, he told me when I left school and went to Adelaide Union, did my undergraduate degree, which was a BA, um, that I would never get a job. Um, and so, yeah, there was tension there between us about that. Mum was very supportive because mum would have had a career continued a career I think singing but dad when they met dad was not remotely interested in it and you know they went into business and life was different then um so um but yeah there was never any ever a choice for me I just always knew from when I was little always knew so you studied didn't quite know how I thought it originally as an actor or something but yeah yeah. but you went up being a theatre director Mm. yeah after studying at Adelaide yeah uni uh, I managed companies for a while, right. and um, my first job was with the Adelaide Uni Theatre Guild, um, which is a very, very old um, theatre company in Australia. Not, you know, a lot of people are unaware. It did the first productions of a lot of Patrick White plays for the Adelaide Festival back in the sixties and stuff like that. Really, really interesting theatre company. Um, so that's that's the uni branch of, of like Suds here at Sydney. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And they hired a. Um, they hired a director that was Peter Gers, who I don't know if you know Peter Gers, but he's South, a South Africa. No, no he's no, a um, he's an Adelaide sort of entity. He does a radio right. show, very flamboyant, lovely man. Right. Um, and we used to do five shows a year, and um, he was a director, and I was the producer, I guess. But it was called administrator back in those days. But it was really a producer role, um, and I was like, because I finished my BA and went to do a teaching degree, and which was called a dip ed then. I don't know if it's that's what it still is and I did about six months of that and that this job came up and I took it and I'm really glad I did I learned so much in a couple of years like doing five shows a year and just learning as you went and stay doing everything from stage managing to managing the company to producing to directing a couple of shows to yeah acting in a couple of shows it was kind of like yeah, and it was great actually so those years are building the skills which you're going to yeah. sort of put into practice later on in- yeah yeah, because studying drama then um, was was all very text-based and all the rest of it. This was, like, totally practical. Hands-on. Yeah, yeah. What do you enjoy most about telling stories? Um, that's another great question. What do I enjoy most? I think I enjoy the, the response. And I think I, I really love... Um, I love stories that are very I love everyday stories you know I love everyday sort of kitchen dramas you know I love that I love that sort of stuff um and I love giving um amplification to to people's lives yeah 
So you leave Adelaide in 1987, I think. Yeah. Was that just to, to escape or you wanted to head towards the big smoke? Well, Robert Sydney? and I had come to Mardi Gras, right? Right, so you had a taste. <laughs> yeah. And then we came back a couple more times. Um, and I fell in love with Sydney pretty much the first time we came here. And, um, and also those were the, you know, this was the mid... 80s when we were coming here as tourists and they were the heady days of Oxford Street um you know rubies and and then a lesbian in Adelaide you know slim pickings (laughs) 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 um sorry to my Adelaide friends but it was um and I wanted a I wanted to I wanted a career in the arts and I knew that was there was only a certain sort of amount of jobs that I could doing in Adelaide and so I applied for a job with a little theatre company called Death Defying Theatre that's now called Urban Theatre Projects and it's now oh, based Eskiville? Uh, oh, no it's no. now based out in Liverpool I think right but it was based in Paddington then it was a touring company yeah. sort of circus skill based and I applied for a job as their general manager and got it and I literally packed up the car and left Adelaide in two weeks it was I was 24 I think and now I look back on it and think, gee, that was a brave thing to do. But back then it was just the very natural thing to do. Very yeah. natural. Um, and thought I'd be here for a couple of years. Well, that's 30-something years ago. So. Yeah. And gone in a flash. Yeah, gone in a flash, exactly. Uh, Melbourne's often described as being the, the cultural or, or art centre of the nation. Is that necessarily true? Does Sydney give it, can Sydney give it, or Adelaide, anywhere give it a good run for its money? Uh I think I was always asked this question when I was creative director at the City of Sydney. I was always asked, you know, why Sydney? Um, I think we're all very different and it's like comparing, you know, apples and oranges. I think we do some things. I think no one does public events like Sydney. Um, I think in terms of festivals, I think Adelaide's got it because I think Adelaide's the right size. You know, I think really great arts festivals are often in small cities. and Melbourne just does it all the time. <laughs> Melbourne has a great public art. Yeah, it I does. Think, yeah, it does have good public and, art. Yeah. And I work a lot in public art now. And Sydney's got a... It's starting. Um, you know, I, half my friends went to Melbourne and half went to Sydney. It was an interesting... And I think... I, you know, I, I can't lie. I think that part of the reason I came to Sydney was because of my sexuality. You know, it, it really was. And, and it... You know, everyone, you know, you talk to anyone around my age about Sydney in those days, and it was like this shining beacon, you know, yeah. wasn't it? We all kind of walked towards it like zombies in a way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, in, in a similar way, I suppose, that Americans flocked to San Francisco. San Francisco. Yeah. And you don't need to do that anymore, no. you know, thankfully. Um, the world's changed. and But I still hear stories of young kids in the country coming to Sydney for that What's well, about reason. finding your tribe? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and boy, did I find my tribe. Well, <laughs> you, you scored a gig at Mardi, uh, Mardi Gras, a festival director in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, yeah 89, I think. That was a time of extraordinary parties and community. Yeah, I was really... I, I've, I've often thought I've been incredibly lucky to be at the right place at the right time on a few occasions. Um, and that was one of them. I was working as the general manager of Griffin Theatre Company which was just a nightmare. Um, I'd kind of got headhunted from that, from Death Defying Theatre to Griffin. I thought, oh, wow, you know, because back that, at that time they were doing, you know, Michael Gow and they were doing incredible... New Australian works. Yeah, New yeah. Australian works, and that's my thing. I love Australian Australian works. I love Australian theatre. Um, and um, 
that I got there and within a month, you know, I kind of unearthed this massive deficit that I hadn't been told about and they were in trouble with the Australia Council, they were in trouble with, um, well, not in trouble with, but, you know, they were had a significant uh, financial situation. Um, and I was a baby, I was 25 or something, 25, 26. Um, and uh, oh, it was just horrible. There was no joy in it, you know. Yeah. I was cleaning, literally cleaning toilets at the stables because we couldn't afford to have a cleaner and stuff. And I thought, yeah, right, this is not what I kind of thought it would be. And I got a phone call. A friend of mine was on the board of Mardi Gras and, they, and she said, oh, Mardi Gras looking for a festival director. And I said, oh, I've never done that. And she said, I reckon you could. And I went for an interview and... Uh, I got home and the phone rang and they offered me the job straight away. It was only very recently that I was talking to one of the people that interviewed me, Richard Perham. He said, oh, I'll never forget that interview. He said, you came in, you had a life in the theatre. Like, we couldn't believe that somebody that was actually a theatre person was applying for this job. Um, And so I went to my first day and I think that I was the first paid festival director they ever had. They had a volunteer volunteer. I think they'd done two festivals maybe um a volunteer committee before that and I said oh where's all the paperwork and stuff and lovely Tom Houlihan who was the office manager opened the drawer and there were like six pieces of paper in a manila folder and that was it so it was like from scratch you were working from the ground floor up yeah, yeah. and again a bit like sort of the theatre guild experience what an amazing opportunity but exciting yeah that you could shape and craft, Incredible. And craft that yeah. and you know um, it was it was the best job I've ever had, I think, really, in some ways. In other ways, the hardest job I've ever had. Um, it, But the workshop and the offices then were in Rushcutters Bay. Um, so the workshop and the offices, everything was in the one place, which was just this incredible hive of creativity. I've never experienced anything like it. Peter Tully and David McDermott mm. were working down in the workshop. Um you know, they'd just hired me, they'd just hired a party director. Uh, the place had money, like, you know, and we didn't rely on government funding so we could do whatever we liked. I was given, I can't exactly remember how much it was, but pretty much carte blanche to create a festival, which I did. We used Belvoir Street. But back then, interestingly, not everyone wanted us. Um, and Robin Kershaw was the general manager of Belvoir Street at the time. And Belvoir were the only theatre that would have us and we'd take over Belvoir Street and do I produce shows upstairs and downstairs for four weeks producing new works by people like Alex Harding Only Heaven Knows and stuff like that he did a wrote a play called Blood and Honour we won a Human Rights Award for that Um, we did you know the first fair day Um, we did um, pool parties we did all sorts of things but yeah I was going around the world um, to and the Australia Council funded me twice professional development grants to go and look at gay and lesbian work in America because that's where it was all happening then um, and buy works to bring home like what a terrible job someone had to do it <laughs> um, so yeah it was so it was extraordinary extraordinary but golden hard, period hard, hard, hard work yeah. yeah and it's not until you, one gets older I suppose that you can reflect and see the changes that have happened probably every decade with Mardi Gras yeah ever since because of a whole bunch of reason you know social cultural society laws it's uh, but the same problem still haunts it I think you know and that is um, that I think Mardi Gras needs to keep reinventing itself and and you know I'm sure I'll get howled down for this but I'm not convinced that it that it's really done that mm. um, and I think you know 
I think it's done it to a certain extent and it's certainly in a better spot now than it was, let's say, than five years ago. But um, I think we expect a lot out of Mardi Gras because it's it's more than just a festival for us, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's in my DNA. I remember leaving Mardi Gras and saying, you know, you can take the girl out of Mardi Gras, but you can never take Mardi Gras out of the girl. Like, I still feel incredibly passionate about the organisation and so does everyone and I think that's part of what makes it so hard and part of what makes it so hard to reinvent itself. Um, so it's still got a party that it's main, that you know, funds its main, um, funds everything else basically that now is in trouble because of numbers and venues and so there's this ongoing and, and we were talking about that 30 years ago about the party being the cash cow and how can we you know get more money and then you get sponsors and then there's a whole issue with that and so it's a real kind of conundrum i guess it's it's difficult but the party's not the only uh, one and offer now there's so many boutique parties that happen all over the weekend isn't yeah it? and that was happening in competition yeah that was happening just happening when i was leaving but you but in the days that i was there and when i left mardi gras as a staff member i would come back and direct shows at the parties and uh, direct pool parties and directed the celebration of the female voice that was at um, Centennial Park that um, Sheena Easton headlined at and you know did great things like that um, but back in those days you'd rather be dead than not go to the Mardi Gras party you know like that was you know to think of going somewhere else 20,000 people at a party and oh yes you'd so still yeah you'd still manage to have these incredibly intimate experiences and we didn't rely on big names then I mean Kylie and you know stuff but it wasn't um you know that was a secret you remember the worst yes. kept secret yes. on earth about who was performing um it wasn't sold on the strength of um you know big names it was sold on the strength of of a community tribal gathering and I think that's what it needs to go back to. But that's a whole other interview. Another interview. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there were years, you know, also with the impact of HIV/AIDS. Yeah, yeah. On, in the community, um, which did that make it difficult to produce a, a celebration? Yeah, but it made it even more important. Mm. And I think, you know, um, not wanting to talk about the coronavirus, but I think that's going to make us coming together after all of this even more important. Um, but certainly. Uh, it was a devastating time, as you know, and I was right in the thick of it. You know, we were going to funerals every week and I lost, you know, really good friends, as did many people, you know, Peter and David being two of them, Peter Tully and David McDermott. Um, but it made it even more important, um, two things, to tell those stories. You know, I said before about telling stories of the everyday, you know, and... and and um, we did several works around HIV and AIDS um, and imported some theatre rhinoceros in San Francisco, imported some shows there from there and Michael Kearns and Tim Miller, a range of people who were doing some really interesting work around that. So there was that, telling that story, but it's also incre you know, incredibly important for people to still celebrate life. And, and I think for whether you had HIV or not, Mardi Gras was still incredibly important, um, bringing together of, of people and celebrating life. Yeah, I think we're human beings, we love ritual, and I think Mardi Gras is a really significant one. Yeah, but a sad time, really sad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it still haunts me. For over 25 years, you've produced some of Australia's most engaging and successful international events and mm. festivals. Um, 
Don't believe your own publicity. Don't forget. No, <laughs> I don't, well, it's such an eclectic sort of a mix of, of product. Um, uh, Rugby League World Cup, Art Moves Public Art Project, the Newtown Festival, Barangaroo Welcome Celebrations, Sydney Chinese New Year, um, Australian Theatre of the Deaf. That's a, a huge range of platforms to um, I'm interested to in lots with. of things, I guess. Yeah. You know, it gets back to that storytelling and... Um, yeah, I've, I've been very fortunate. I've, I've, I've done some really, really interesting things. The Rugby League World Cup one kind of stands out, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that was only last year or the year before, year before last. And that was great fun. That was like putting on a Mardi Gras show for rugby league people. Um, <laughs> uh, Casey Donovan was the lead who's fabulous. I love, just love working with her. Yeah. I worked with her a lot. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I guess I'm interested in lots of things and, and it all comes back to that narrative of the... Of, you know, people getting to those stories, amplifying those stories. Um, yeah, Theatre of the Deaf was an interesting experience and I actually wrote a few shows for them and directed a few shows for them and that taught me a lot about communication, a real lot about communication. Um, and what an amazing, you know, that theatre company was amazing. It used to tour nationally and, um, uh, yeah, and directing, directing a bunch of deaf people was incredibly challenging but incredibly rewarding and it was back in the t day and, and that sort of job happened because it was back in the day when um sign singers we used to call them used to do all the mardi gras shows yeah and still do i guess haven't i wasn't at mardi gras this year but still still do um and they were incredible communicators and that's sort of how i fell into that i was quite entranced by that whole the physicality of expression of you know songs and all of that kind of stuff yeah so i wrote a show for them called jukebox which is all about for, for schools which is kids picking from a list and the guys would you know song sing and and it was a really great way to introduce kids to you know auslan and all the rest of it yeah but yes very eclectic and continues to be very eclectic you're working on huge canvases too yeah I yeah guess. yeah is that a challenge to sort of produce events of that size? I um, mean, just the, 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 the logistics. And the... I think you get very used to it. I think, um, yeah, people say that, but for me that, and this is not a arrogance, no, it, it's kind of what, what I'm used with. to. Yeah. And I and I took that pill, <laughs> funny analogy, when I, went to Mar when I worked at Mardi Gras and I just got bitten by that bug of scale and I love working at scale. So it's a big team working alongside yeah. you, I guess. Yeah, yeah, so... Depends. Like when I was the creative director at the City of Sydney, I had about 20 full-time staff. And when we were doing something like Chinese New Year Parade, we'd have 200 casuals. So when I did Dark Mofo, uh, Winter Feast for Dark Mofo for the first three years, um, I'd ha I, it would be me and two other people for most of the year. And then, you know, you'd scale up and, but yeah, big teams. And so you have to become a very good people manager and you have to become very flexible. Because live events are, um, and I think this is what I love about them, they change all the time. So you can't be too precious and you have to be directing on your feet all the time. Because something that might work in your head or on a site plan, as soon as you get an audience in there, and you get better at this as you get more experience, but sometimes the best laid plans just don't work. So you're constantly shifting and ch changing things well, as you go. With big events, I always think of the 
2000 Olympics and the lighting of the flame with Kathy, yes exactly Kathy Freeman, and those things um, happen all the time my god oh, no. what must have been going through the um was the that head? Me? no that's me, oh. me. <laughs> ting, ting. Yeah. um what must have been going through that creative team's head about yeah. is this going to work is it not what yeah. if it doesn't and I've had several moments like that not quite as um, famous <laughs> or as or public yeah as public but um. I'm a bit of a bore to go to one of my events with because I'm never, rela- I don't stop. Oh, you can't relax, you know? can you? And you I'm always be- talking at people with kind of looking over their heads and Caroline now says, you're not listening to me, are you? Oh, <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> Focused on the job. <laughs> um, and I do, you know, I do an event at the moment called Firelight in Melbourne, which is at Docklands and we're having, it's the only thing that's ever worked at Docklands, this big winter sort of fire and light sort of and food sort of event. And we've got 20-odd thousand people a night there and lots of live flame and lots of, you know, lots of stuff. So you're constantly, I'm just constantly walking around, just looking at everything. So that's a significant consideration too, the WH&S. Yeah, um, you've yeah. got people working on that Yeah, I hire well. experts yeah. to do that. I yeah. don't do that. Back in the day when I worked at Mardi Gras, there was no such thing. <laughs> well, maybe there was. I remember going up into the gantry of... Um, the Horden Pavilion and doing a snowstorm. You remember the snowstorms mm. that used to happen and they were like little bits of tally-ho paper. paper and you'd throw them at a fan, right? And um, no fan guards, no nothing, like up up in the air literally and I was throwing it in, you know, probably had several drinks or whatever <laughs> and um, <laughs> throwing it in, throwing it in. I wear a bangle on my wrist. I'm throwing it in, throwing it in. I heard this tick, 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 tick. I went, oh, okay, too close. Too close to the <laughs> That was the risk assessment, clearly. Yeah. Wow. Um, wow. But no, we don't do that stuff anymore. Uh, yeah. The, look, our, our industry changed about 20-odd years ago and we do more risk assessments now than ever before and you have to. And, and a lot of the stuff we do, it's really interesting. A lot, a lot of the work I do now because I like using fires, you know, because they help, you know, fires are such an innate part of human interaction and gathering and I love... You, you, it's primal. Very I mean, the primal. The first stories were told around fires. Totally. Yeah. And and I got that fire bug. Well, I was a bit of a pyromaniac when I was little, but that's another <laughs> story. Um, back in the day when everyone had an incinerator down in their backyard. Oh, I know. <laughs> I loved See, it. See, what could I throw on? Oh, I know. Well, aerosol Hairspray, yeah. yeah, loved it. <laughs> and then walk away until it exploded. Mm. I'd come in with singed eyelashes. And well, Guy Fawkes Night, we'd build yeah. the biggest bonfires yeah. and there was no Fantastic. precaution, I know. no protection. Yeah. So anyway, fire... They were the days. Use, exactly, they were the days. And using fire is, you know, I, I just love it and you know with Touchwood, we've never had an incident you know with massive crowds people sitting around fires I often just hire well I've hired storytellers on a variety of events to just sit by the fire and suddenly just start telling a story we did that at Winter Feast and we do it at Firelight and people just love it and you find people sitting next to people that they don't know and this whole different dynamic that is innate mm. um, and nothing's ever gone wrong but it's it took me nearly a year to convince Hobart City Council with, you know, with, with uh, Winterfeast that it'd be all right, you know. We can cook meat outdoors too and it'll be all right. Not everyone's, you know, going to get burnt or throw themselves in the fire or yeah. whatever, yeah. People will generally be sensible. Generally, yeah. yeah. What's been the most bizarre event that you've had to produce or put together? Oh. Been any odd requests or...? Um... Well, you might like to think of the most challenging. Uh, most challenging would be 
Chinese New Year, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because when I started doing that, and probably the most bizarre (laughs) in some ways, um, because when I started doing that, it was a, for the city of Sydney, it was a really uh, markets in um, Dixon Street. And, um, you know, the parade had 100 people in it and 200 people watching. And I saw incredible potential for that event with our position in Asia and growing relationship with China and um, and it grew to be the largest celebration of the Lunar Year outside of mainland China and it was challenging because it was so political and I'm really glad that I worked that I worked at Mardi Gras before I did Chinese New Year because they're really similar in that um, the politics are astounding the Chinese politics were as you know we 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 forged a relationship with the Chinese government leading up to the Beijing Olympics. So they would send over 500 to 1,000 performers to be in the parade and we switched the parade to nighttime. And I curated and directed the parade because I'd learned from Mardi Gras that if you don't curate, it can become four hours long and, you know, varying degrees of quality. It was still a community parade, the Chinese New Parade, but um, very curated. But, yeah, um, you know, we would have the Chinese government telling us suggesting sorry um (laughs) you know who should and shouldn't be in it and we had ambassadors and you know who should and shouldn't be ambassadors and i was uh i went to china probably four or five times and uh was you know whisked off planes in black limousines and taken to (laughs) rooms that you see on television with the big bucket chairs and you know treated like you know treated like I was super important. Um, so that was pretty bizarre, that whole experience of So you went with a whole lot of cultural considerations too. And you yeah. have to tread carefully, I guess. Yeah, very carefully. Sort of put your head around all that. And for the first about seven Chinese New Year's I did, I'd never been to China. So I was kind of doing it by internet, you know, and learning that whole cultural sort of difference. But the way I approached Chinese New Year and was sort of the way I approached most things, um, was what would what what would I like to learn? What would I like to see? What stories can I tell? What similarities are there here? How can we bring people together? And it became an enormously successful event. So, but yeah, pretty. I found myself in some pretty bizarre um, performances and situations. And because you had Korean and Vietnamese participation too, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, some very interesting performances in you know the middle of nowhere in China and stuff like that, which were pretty. Yeah, pretty culturally challenging at times. Yeah. So tell me about. Lucky your... I wasn't a vegetarian then. Let's oh, put it really? That way. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your stints on on radio and TV because you did you did Beauty and the Beast for a while too, didn't you? Yeah, for four years. Right. Yeah. Um, I got that gig because I hosted the Mardi Gras parade on um, it was on Foxtel right. and Channel Ten, and um, the guy that directed it, Mark Adamson, skid great guy. He said, do you want to come and do an episode of Beauty and Beast just as one one off? And I ended up, yeah, four years later as a regular. Um, so to the listener who perhaps doesn't know <laughs> what um, Beauty and the Beast was, it was a panel show in which uh, an all-female panel yep. sort of argued with a, a male host. Yeah, so our hosts were Stan Zamanik for the first three years and then Doug Mulray for the last year. Yeah. Um, it was the most fun I've ever had making money. It was just a blast. It was so much fun. Um, and I was the token lesbian, of course. So every time I was on it, you know, there'd be letters. And so people would write in 
It was like an agony art sort oh, of show. Yeah. People would write in letters, you know, about a problem and we would have to solve them because we were all such experts. <laughs> Me and Jeannie Little and Prue McSween and Ida Buttrose. Was Carl Otter on? Carl Otter. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And... Uh, yeah, it was just, it was so much fun. And we used to go on tour. We'd take it to Twin Towns and do live shows. And um, it was bizarre. I had a fan club. It was weird, you know. <laughs> it was the early, very early 2000s. Um, Did you get to go to the Logies? No, I never got. No, oh, right. I know. And for somebody like me who, yeah. you know, loves, as we've both discovered, variety shows. And I love award shows too. No, I never got to go to Logies. But... Um, yeah, like being bailed up in shopping centres and asked for an autograph. It was quite bizarre. And it was one of those shows. It was on, I think, I think it was on around 1 o'clock, one thirty or something. Yeah, it was a lunchtime. Yeah, sure. So no one ever admitted to watching it, but everyone saw it. It was one of those shows. And a lot of shift workers, a lot of flight attendants. I got treated on really well on planes for those four years. Um, but I, I was the only out person, lesbian, on TV for a long time. And so... Was this before Ellen? Yep, before yeah, Ellen. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was early... I think I reckon I was about 2000 to 2004. Um, Ellen didn't come out till later than that, I don't think. No, no, sure. Um, so, yeah. Um, and I... Apart from it being fun, it was a massive opportunity to um, give a voice to lesbians. And... Yep. Um, and sort of be a seemingly, I use this word deliberately, normal person, yeah. you know, um, who could have a laugh at themselves and at others and could flirt with Stan and, you know, give him the run around the table and could talk about other things. And uh, I think it was a really, yeah, again, I don't want to overblow this, but I think it was a really important voice to have. And, yeah. um, and people responded really well. I did, you know, I was really... You know, I got lots of fan letters and stuff, but just also from parents who, you know, would write in and say, you know, my daughter or son's just come out and, you know, and they sat me down and got me to watch you. And, you know, that, that meant a lot. Right, yeah, know, that's a, a meant privileged a lot to position me. to be yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and met friends for life on that show, you know. And, um, again, going back to the... <laughs> um, to the Thing that we loved about the Don Lane show and you know the midday show and all of that being on a panel with Jeannie Little you know people like yeah. that it was just like holy hell how did this happen yeah great. yeah great great <laughs> what about um characters like Zamanik and Mulray who are known for being quite bombastic shock jocks yeah is that a character yeah they're playing so the Stan nice was guys? one of the nicest people I've ever met right. in my well, life and yeah. when at the same time I was doing uh, Beauty and the Beast I was on um I've done radio sort of a lot of times in my life because I love it I think it's probably one of my first loves actually I really enjoy it and there was a ra- I don't know if you remember a radio a gay radio station called Out FM gay and lesbian radio station when in everybody Sydney. was going for a license and yeah, it, yeah. and there's, still, there's joy in, in Melbourne yeah. Yeah. and it was hugely successful um, in Sydney and we were trying to get a license and we didn't get one in the end but anyway I was doing Out FM we used to call it rubber band radio because we had really the equipment was all falling apart and all the rest of it and I used to do mornings on that or mid-mornings on that show and Stan um, you know this is a story about Stan that I think exemplifies the kind of guy he was because um, we lost him to brain cancer yeah yeah um, and he said oh you know he, he was he used to listen and to out of him and give me tips and help me 
get my foot in the door at TUE because I did quite a lot of stuff at, on TUE. And um, he was a real champion of mine. You know, he was a lovely, lovely, generous guy. And his wife, Marcella, beautiful woman. Anyway, um, he uh, said to me, oh, you know, TUE are getting new equipment. Um, and I think, you know, I've suggested that out FM get the, get the old desk and stuff. So that happened, you know, and he Brilliant. made that happen. Yep. And yeah, he, you know, a lot of my friends went, oh, how can you work with that person? How can you be friends? He's such a homophobe. Well, his homophobia, which was an act, gave me an opportunity to have a differing view um, and put that view pretty forcefully on that show. And he would often agree. And therefore we would, you know, sort of get that message out, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, he would, and Doug, Doug was just, he's a rascal. He's a lovely guy. <laughs> he's naughty. Very naughty. Yeah. <laughs> so did you have your own shifts on 2UE or you were a... I used to do the George and Paul show for right. years, um, What's so... On in Sydney. And then I um, did uh, Midnight to Dawn um, over a Christmas period and a couple of other periods. Yeah. Yeah. I love radio. What's it's fun? just so bloody hard to get into. Yeah. yeah. And particularly if you're a woman. Really, yeah. Still, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Midnight to Dawn was fun. You started your own company, GMC, in 2015. Yeah. That must have been Five exciting. Years. Yeah, I'd been at the city for 15 years and I sort of felt like, and I'd never thought of myself as being a council worker, but being at the city of Sydney is not like being a council worker. Um, and it gave me an opportunity to, to, you know, just refine what I did and develop those events. And um, Barangaroo came to me and offered me... Uh, the contract to um, do their openings, which was three months of events. And uh, I thought it's now or never, and I took a giant leap of faith and haven't looked back, really. It's been, um, it's been, yeah, it's, it's, I, yeah, I really like working for myself. There's things. You can do your own thing, and I guess you, you're exploring a wider clientele as well. Yeah, and it's, and, and like, sort of, the business kind of is in, thirds really and third of it is consulting so I go often and like for city of Melbourne or for um I've just done a whole lot of work with Northern Beaches Council and stuff and look at their events and you know give do event reviews and restructures and all that sort of stuff which I quite like doing uh all care no responsibility a third's doing the big event stuff and I've been doing that all over Australia which has been awesome and about a third doing public art which is my other my other love is the visual arts and so I've really I really love doing that so I've been able to just kind of I've been incredibly lucky in that I've just had work since I started the company um you know it'll be interesting when we all go back to work after the current situation with the coronavirus because I think we'll be needed more than ever um but um yeah it's just really open it's given me a, a great um an even bigger canvas but um yeah there's challenges that go with it too you have to have a lot of self-belief i think yeah, just nobody going. really told me that <laughs> yeah. but we're getting there but it sounds like you've always suffered from that a lack of belief in your ability and what you're able to accomplish does it needlessly i mean talking about those early years when you thought can i really do this and you need that yeah. encouragement that this yes you can and I, I you've get... proved time and time again that you are certainly yeah, thank you. I look. I, I yeah. I, I guess I've I've always thrown myself in at the deep end. Perhaps that's why I often sit go. Oh, can I? But I think look, 
you don't throw yourself in the deep end unless you're pretty convinced you can swim. Yeah. Um, you know, and I don't want to appear to have a faux kind of, you know, <laughs> um, uh, hum- you know, humility. But um, look, I think I think it's better to sort of go, "Oh, can I do this and do it well?" and go, "I can do this and not, you know, yeah. and not." But yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's an, that's an interesting perspective. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> are we seeing more public art appearing in, in Sydney, around Sydney? Sydney? Yeah, we are. And I mean, there's a, some time ago, that, that, that huge ribbon that was going to appear outside the town hall, is that still going ahead? No. No, that's not. No, because of big budget blowout, I think. Right. Um, I, think, I think we were, and it'll be interesting, I guess, you know, with the current economic climate to see whether companies and stuff still have money to do those things. Mm. A lot of the public artworks that I've done have been very much narrative-based, telling, you know, I've just done a project uh, with Transport for New South Wales, which was um, doing uh, artworks on 22 um, bus stops uh, on the Beeline buses on in the Northern Beaches, which is very much about place and people and things like that. So very much about, again, bringing communities together. It's a common theme <laughs> for me, um, rather than the big monolithic sort of, you know, sculptures. Um, but I think, I think it really makes a massive difference to cities. Um, a project that I did when I was at the City of Sydney called Art and About, which is a big public art project that I directed for a long time. And it really changes the way people interact with cities, the way they view their cities, um, the respect they have for public places changes. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it's as, it's as old as time itself, public art. It's, yeah. But now we call it public art, you know. Um, so Art and about, did that, was that uh, in Hyde Park we had all those huge all the photographs, photographs that was one of Yeah, that, that was, was one of the exhibitions. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we used to produce probably 10 major artworks a year. Like, it was a big, big project. Um, and internationally, you know, you go anywhere and often often the reason you like a great city is because it's full of art. New York's one of them, Chicago's another one. Well, London's I love driving one. in from Tullamarine in Melbourne. Yeah. And, you know, just the, the highway there is, is <laughs> fantastic. They call them the McDonald's. Yes, the red and the yellow yeah, yeah. and the cubes and, yeah. and all that sort of thing. I mean, and there was the, the Yellow Peril early in Melbourne's history, which I think they had to move. Oh, I don't know that one. Well, that may be the horrible nickname they gave it, but it was a, a four yellow sort of sheets that sort of lent on each other and they've, they've hidden it out of view now. Right. But it was good. But Federation Square too, I remember... I remember thinking, what a monstrosity! But yeah. I love Federation Square. Now mm, I think it's you know not like, convinced. No, no. <laughs> but I think you know I think my, like a parade is like moving public art. You yeah. know, like and I think I was you know I think meeting Peter and David. My mother loved loved visual arts. Has a great art collection. Um, you know, I think or you know I think it's just been something that, and I love art. I love working with artists. You know, I think my most important relationship I have on a event is with a designer. You know, it's, it starts from. You know, it's a very visual kind of medium so yeah and I loved I loved being part of the design process of floats and you know all of that so it's not that much of a stretch no, really no. when you look at it like that one static and one moves yeah yeah exactly so so why are the arts just to finish off why are the arts crucial to a community uh, I I think what we were saying before I think it's it's innate I yeah. think um, it brings us together I think we've you know yeah since sitting around those fires you know in millennia ago we've been telling one another stories and now we just do it in different ways I don't and I think it's that simple and that complicated um, you know we can bang on about enrichment of lives and all of that kind of thing I just think it's something we have to do I think it's 
it's in our DNA. It's something that 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 artistic expression um, is. It's not a choice. It's part of who we are, and we need people to encourage it and nourish it, and you know, bring it out and amplify it. And more than ever, I think we're going to be reliant on the arts to engage and and, and inform and and um, entertain us over. Yeah, I the think, next period, whatever that shall be. And I think there'll be new stories to tell. Um, and new ways of telling and them And new too. ways of telling them, exactly. And, you know, I look back at the other virus, I look back at HIV and AIDS and the stories, you know, no one wants that to happen in order for stories to be told. But um, that, that really changed the way we told some stories and really changed the way we uh, viewed some, you know, viewed some communities and artists responded you know in amazing ways and I think that will happen again and I think you know in some ways we're the chroniclers you know we're the we're the you know the living newspapers and um and I think you're right I think in hard times we need it more than in good but you know it's kind of like trying to push a balloon underwater you're never going to win to try and stop people from expressing themselves creatively. Thanks Gil I've loved talking to you. Pleasure. I was great fun talking to Gil and to uh, find a shared passion and love for the great kings of television like Graham Kennedy, Don Lane, Bert Newton and Mike Walsh. Lots of fun. Gil Minervini. Thanks for making us a part of your podcast listening audiences. Uh, A new episode of The Stages podcast is released every Thursday and occasionally there's a bonus episode dropped in just for good measure. I know that many of you have been recommending the podcast to colleagues and your friends and your neighbours and your family and uh, I thank you very much for that. Your enthusiasm is much appreciated. A lot of you are sending me emails and messages um, and I'm very grateful for that and um, it's it's a great uh, encouragement to keep going. Uh, Not that I've had any doubts to stop. I love it. I receive communicating and uh, uh, knowing that you're out there listening. You couldn't go one step further though, could you? Take a moment to rate the podcast and leave a short review. You can do this through the podcast iTunes app where you probably access this episode. It will help get the series promoted and received and spreading the word just like you when you tell your friends and family. Until next time though, I'm Peter Ayers. And you've been listening to episode 117 of Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Keep warm, keep well, and I'll catch you next time.